All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with the esteemed former senator from the great state of Texas, Phil Graham. He's the co-author, along with Robert Eklund and John Early, of a new book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. One of the things that we have going on in Washington, not just now, but for decades, is the enlistment of a lot of different government agencies to be our stand-ins for assessing what goes on in the world. This tends to inform uh, the policy debates that happen in Washington uh, to an outsized degree. We just assume that these government numbers are based in an accurate vision of what's going on in America and around us domestically, particularly when it comes to assessing things like inequality. And yet, the underlying assessments that are going on there the basis for a lot of these numbers is often flawed, and the methodology used is certainly something that is worth questioning. This has been something that Phil Graham has been talking about since his days in uh, representative government as both a Democrat and then as a Republican, uh, and he, it's something that he cares about a great deal. We talk about the myth of American inequality and the kind of assessments and changes that need to be made in order to get a better view of what's really going on when it comes to the American economic experience. Phil Graham, coming up next. Senator Phil Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, thank you, Ben. Uh, I have to say uh, that I have an abundance of uh, Phil Graham memorabilia, uh, probably uh, more than the average uh, American, uh, <laughs> including including a Phil Graham for president hat. Oh, wow. uh, that I would you're, you're I would like very, I would like to. <laughs> well, uh, uh, John John gave it to me uh, uh, because he knew I was such a fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I love I love your father in law, and I say it in the present. I don't. I don't buy into this thing. I love somebody and I stop loving them when they're dead. My grandmother's been dead 50 years and I still love her. <laughs> that is a good approach, sir. I, I, uh, I have to say it's, um, it's a very interesting gap in time to look at between the point where, uh, you know, someone like you was uh, viewed as someone who was you know, the leader of conservatism in America to a certain extent uh, to today. And there seems to be a lot of differences and a lot of things. But I wanted to just get your take on sort of the way the Senate behaves today, because it seems very different than the way that it used to behave for a lot of different reasons. And I wonder what your own analysis is of why that is. Well, first of all, there's this tendency for old guys to think they were there when things were wonderful and they've gone to hell after they left. But I think there are two things that are clearly different. One is uh, people are far more willing to uh, attack people personally uh, and impugn their motives, which is something you could have never gotten away with when I was in the Senate. Um, and I think that's harmful. It's sort of like you get into an argument with your spouse and she says something, you say something, she says something, you say something. Pretty soon you forgot what the argument was about, but you remember what you said and what they said. But the second thing is far more important. 
when I was there, Senator Byrd was one of my really good friends and allies. And I was able to work with Ted Kennedy. Uh, and I was able to work with Joe Biden. But in those days, they wanted more government, which I did not want. I wanted more freedom. But they didn't want to remake the economic system of the country. They didn't want to tear down the old America and build a new collectivist America. And as a result, it's much harder to have any kind of broad compromise today. Uh, how do you compromise with somebody who wants to destroy the greatest economy the world has ever known and rebuild it in the image of Eastern Europe? Uh, it's just, it's hard to, to have bipartisanship uh, under those circumstances. Uh, now, maybe that will change. The American people have got to decide what kind of country do we uh, want, and you decide that in elections, so we're getting ready to have one. So maybe we're moving in the direction of deciding. Your new book uh, delves into perhaps uh, the most significant economic debate that is currently taking place in our politics, uh, namely a debate about whether inequality is something that needs uh, or requires massive government intervention into the marketplace uh, and into our society in order to alleviate it. And you do, you approach it basically by saying that the Census Bureau is using both the wrong measures, ignoring certain things, ignoring many factors that would actually show that the American system has created a much better way of life uh, for most Americans uh, than the one we typically see in the pages of the New York Times. Tell me how this came about and what the key aspects of it are okay. uh, that you that you diagnose as the problem in your book. Well, for about 20 years, I've noticed a growing uh, uh, separation between what the census says is happening to household income, which is the building block of our measure of poverty. It's the building block of the measure of income inequality. It's the building block of what is happening to our income over time. I've noticed a growing gap between what the census says and other clear, clear uh, measures by government and in the private sector. I'll just give you an example. For the last 10 years, the Census Bureau has put out a number as to what income is uh, in American households by quintiles, five different quintiles. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has also issued consumption by the five quintiles. And guess what? The bottom quintile of income earners in America routinely for a decade has consumed twice as much as its income. The second quintile has consumed 11% more, and the top uh, quintile has consumed 50% less than their income, even though there is no evidence whatsoever that savings 
uh, through the accumulation of assets is anything like the level you would have with a 50% savings rate. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because going back to 1947, when the census started calculating household income, they made decisions that were simplifications then, but have become very important now, that they did not count transfer payments that were not paid directly in cash equivalent. Now, in 1947, that wasn't a bad estimate, but what has happened over time, especially since the war on poverty, is we now have a situation where census counts only $0.9 trillion of government transfers as income to the people who got the benefit. And we currently have transfer payments of $2.8 trillion. So they're not counting two-thirds of the benefits that people are getting as their income. Secondly, they don't take any account of taxes. So we now have a situation where they don't count uh, refundable tax credits, which you get in a federal check because they don't count taxes. Uh, they don't count food stamps. And you get a debit card and you go to the grocery store with a debit card like you go with a credit card. Uh, they don't count Medicaid where the government pays for your health care. They don't count housing subsidies. They don't count over a hundred other federal, state, and local transfer payments. And when you take in, when you say when you take into account that transfer payments are income to the people that get them, taxes are income loss to the people that pay them. The census says the ratio between the top 20% and the bottom is 16.7, but in fact, it's 4.0. The census says the poverty rate is about 12%, or was right before the pandemic and the explosion of benefits. But when you take into account all the transfer payments, they have risen from $9,700 per household in the bottom quintile in 1965 to $45,400 per average household in the bottom 20% of household earners. And so when you take that into account, we've got somewhere around 2.5% of the people that are poor. Most of them have fallen through the cracks uh, because of mental illness and drug addiction. And we keep pouring more and more money into programs that aren't reaching the people that are really poor, and the people that are getting the money have not been poor for a very, very long time. And then when, final point, uh, uh, the Economist magazine tells us that it is universally accepted that income inequality is high and it's growing. Uh, Bernie Sanders says, the growth of inequality is obscene and unsustainable. Now, listen to this. We show that when you count all transfer payments as income gained, and when you count all taxes as income lost, counting everything, that actually income inequality is slightly lower than it was in 1947. 
So we are having a debate about the future of the greatest economy in the history of the world, where people want to remake it to a limit to reduce income inequality, when in fact, income inequality is lower today than it was when World War II ended. You know, it's it's an incredible thing. Yeah, incredible. And I have to ask you just a personal question. You know, I recall from my days on Capitol Hill working for Senator Cornyn, and I recall, you know, my days, you know, uh, working uh, with a lot of people who had issues with the CBO, for instance. What is the issue when it comes to the Census Bureau that it does not include it, that it has made the decision not to include these transfer payments as income, because why would you want to make things look worse than they actually are? Well, <laughs> one of the things, Ben, that I try to do in the book is not to get into what the motives are. Uh, mm -hmm. I think when they set out this system in 1947, it was a good approximation of reality, and they didn't have the ability to measure all these things. But what has happened over the ensuing 70 years, they measure every one of these things. They report all this data separately, but they don't count it in income. So it creates a total misperception. And I'll just give you an example. President Biden said in uh, uh, 2021 that by dramatically increasing the child tax credit that we would cut the poverty rate among children in half. Okay. They dramatically increased the tax credit. And what happened to the official census measure for children? It didn't change because they didn't count the tax credit. Now they were forced to come out and say, uh, really for the second time ever, admitted that they weren't counting it, but if you did count it, that the rate would have gone down. But the point is the official number doesn't have it in it. And so we'll be debating this for years to come and people will be arguing, we've got 12% poverty in America. We shouldn't tolerate it. We should provide more money. We provide the money, it's not counted. And then we debate it again a few years later. And the point is, that we have raised these benefits so high that because transfer payments have grown far faster than the income of working Americans since 1965 when the war on poverty started. So the, bo the bottom 60% of American families now earn almost the same income or get about the same income. And what that's done is that if you can get about as much not working as you can get for working, why would we be shocked that a lot of Americans have stopped working? And in fact, of the 68% uh, of uh, work age people in the bottom 20% of the income distribution worked in 1965, today it's only 36%. And the labor force participation rate is falling in the second quintile. And with this big increase in spending for entitlements during the pandemic, it's falling in the middle income quintile. And if everybody's riding in the wagon, who's going to pull it?
So that was my next question, actually. I just uh, talked uh, in the last week to Nicholas Eberstadt of uh, AI about his uh, uh, updated version of Men Without Work. Um, the uh, you know situation that we face right now in terms of the American experience is that there are masses of Americans uh, who are out of work, are out of the labor force, are not looking for work. And in every town across the country, we see these signs in the windows of, you know, virtually every establishment uh, with help wanted. Uh, and uh, they are incapable of finding that kind of help. How can we try to get those folks to get back to work in a responsible way that is not cruel to those who actually need help, but really does drive the able bodied uh, and, you know, middle aged uh, back into the workforce. Well, first of all, we're not doing people any favor by paying them not to work because in America, uh, advancement depends on being in the marketplace. The American economy is an escalator. And if you want to benefit from economic growth, you got to be part of the economy. The people that dropped out of the labor market between 1965 and now, they are just detached from the economy, and they've not benefited from the tremendous growth we've had. Um, so how do you do it? I think the only way that you can do it if you're going to pay the level of benefits we're now paying is to have a mandatory work requirement for means-tested programs. We did it during the Clinton administration, but we did it for a very small part of the welfare program, aid to families with dependent children. It produced a dramatic result, the most successful program of my political career in terms of changing behavior was the Clinton welfare reform. We need that reform applied to every means-tested program in America. I think that would be a, the right beginning in getting people back to work. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the Republicans in Congress. There are uh, there's a dominant narrative about Republicans today that basically says in the post-Trump era that they no longer care about fiscal responsibility or deficits. Whether you think this narrative is true or not, it's the one that certainly is advanced by the media uh, and is believed by a lot of folks in Washington how can we get back to a Republican Party that does care about these matters if we believe that they matter, as I do, and I assume that you do? Well, first of all, uh, not trying to be critical, but President Trump did not care about the deficit or about spending or about the size of government. To yep. what degree that <laughs> is reflective of rank-and-file Republicans, I think is debatable. Um I think Republicans have been too quick to uh, go with programs that ended up spending a lot of money that achieved relatively little. The last uh, Trump stimulus bill was ill-advised and shouldn't have been done. 
the Biden bill was totally irresponsible. You can't increase spending by 50% in one year and not expect prices to go up. I mean, you got to believe in miracles to think that's possible. But you have had, I think there's a lot of pressure to to compromise, to show you can work across the aisle, but that has produced also some bad results. Uh, I think the so-called CHIP bill, uh, which spent uh, billions of dollars uh, basically subsidizing chip manufacturers in an era where A, there's already been massive investments. B, every one of them is losing money because of oversupply. And by the time all this money is spent, we will have a glut of computer chips. And that's what happens when government is basically directing the flow of goods and services. If we want the private sector to invest, we need to provide incentives for them to invest, but let them decide. So I'm ready for a Republican Party that says no to spending. And God knows if there's ever been an era where there's plenty of room to reduce or at least control federal spending, it's now. There's more fat in this budget than any budget in American history by far, maybe more than all of them combined. So it's sort of like uh, uh, a, a Republican leader in the House uh, once asked me, I was trying to explain that we needed to, to cut spending. And so Tom DeLay said, well, where would you cut? And I said, everywhere. Everywhere. That's a good start. Uh, so the point being, we need to set some high standards because we're running big deficits. We're running up debt. We're going to have to pay interest on that debt. And we're jeopardizing our ability to meet the basic needs of Americans in programs like Social Security. And someday, these people are going to regret doing this. And, and unfortunately, this someday is not going to be uh, far in the distant future. That's the problem. So I, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is there does seem to be, uh, you know, an appetite for, uh, you know, at least in this moment when so many people have concerns about the economy, uh, concerns about inflation uh, for you know, a, an advocacy for capitalism as being a good thing. But at the same time, there is this kind of faction uh, that has developed, not just on the left, but on the right, that basically judges the, uh, the ramifications of capitalism based on the fact that a lot of corporations have gone woke, have gone to the left when it comes to social policy and the like. And they use this as an argument to sort of say, you know, capitalism or the, you know, the Enlightenment era kind of uh, form of classical liberalism is decadent, that it's backward or that it, you know, is is not something that we ought to uh, continue to pursue. I hear this from, uh, you know, many of my more uh, some of my conservative friends who are, you know, particularly Catholic or that kind of thing. And it makes me concerned well, it should. because it uh, me I'm, 
Yeah, because I'm I'm definitely a fan of capitalism. I'm a fan of the Enlightenment. I think it's I think it's a good thing. I think it's good for humanity. Um, what's the best argument that you have or that you would use as a response to the people who basically say, you know, capitalism, it, it you know, sure, maybe it had a run. You know, these Enlightenment values had a run, but. But, you know, there's all these negatives now and, and, you know, say what you will about the authoritarians in Russia and China, but they don't have trans twerking hour or something like that. Well, first of all, uh, does anybody believe that if we gave government more power over the economy, these problems would uh, be solved? Secondly, uh, it's what is happening with ESG and all of this effort by some to use the retirement savings of tens of millions of Americans to promote their social agenda is the law is being violated. Uh, We have fiduciary laws that say that if I invest money, it shall be invested solely for my benefit, Uh, not for Uh, the benefit of someone who has a social agenda that wants to do it with my pension fund. So I think, first of all, Republicans need to demand that the law be enforced. We've got some uh, conservative attorney generals in the state who are starting that effort. And it's something we ought to grab hold of when we have a Republican majority in Congress. Uh, Capitalism works when you let it work. But what has happened is you've got this pressure now coming from government. You've got a small number of uh, funds, index funds, that were so efficient in helping people diversify their investment that we now see a small number of people using their control of those funds to promote an agenda that is not the agenda of the people whose money we're talking about. And that needs to be stopped. Senator Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, listen, I enjoyed it. And uh, uh, you tell your sweet wife that I sent my love. Rarely does a day go by that I don't (laughs) think about John McCain. We travel together all over the world. Uh, and uh, memories of John McCain are an important part of my life. <laughs> Thank Good you, sir. Guy. I really appreciate it. And I will uh, tell her all of that. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. Another area where there's a really inaccurate assessment of things that pops up time and time again around this time of year is when it comes to hurricanes and the issue of climate change. Uh, I certainly hope that you've seen by now the footage of Joe Biden, you know, on the ground in Florida, uh, having, you know, what was supposed to be kind of a, a friendly uh, united front with Governor uh, Ron DeSantis down there, uh, but also something where he took the opportunity to jive at Republicans and to jab at them over the issue of climate and global warming, as he called it. Um, over the course of a lot of the different, uh, you know, media coverage in the last several years, we see co- crop up time and again, this claim uh, that thanks to climate change, you're seeing uh, much more frequent and much more severe hurricanes. But is this actually the case? Michael Schellenberger in his Substack newsletter uh, writes about this. 
He writes, over the last several weeks, many mainstream news media outlets have claimed that hurricanes are becoming more expensive, more frequent, and more intense because of climate change. The Financial Times reported that hurricane frequency is on the rise. The New York Times claimed strong storms are becoming more common in the Atlantic Ocean. The Washington Post said climate change is rapidly fueling super hurricanes. ABC News declared, here's how climate change intensifies hurricanes. And both the Financial Times and New York Times showed graphs purporting to show rising hurricane frequency. All of those claims are false. The increasing cost of hurricane damage can be explained entirely by more people and more property in harm's way. Consider how much more developed Miami Beach is today compared to a century ago. Once you adjust for rising wealth, there is no trend of increasing damage. Claims that hurricanes are becoming more frequent are similarly wrong. After adjusting for a likely undercount of hurricanes in the pre-satellite era, writes the NOAA, there is essentially no long-term trend in hurricane counts. The evidence for an upward trend is even weaker if we look at U.S. landfalling hurricanes, which even show a slight negative trend beginning from around 1900 or from the late 1800s. What's more, NOAA expects a 25% decline in hurricane frequency in the future. What about intensity? Same story, explains the NOAA. After adjusting for changes in observing capabilities, limited ship operations in the pre-satellite era, there is no significant long-term trend since the 1880s in the proportion of hurricanes that become major hurricanes. The bottom line, we conclude that the historical Atlantic hurricane data at this stage do not provide compelling evidence for a substantial greenhouse warming-induced century-scale increase in frequency of tropical storms, hurricanes, or major hurricanes, or in the proportion of hurricanes that become major. This is the thing that I think we need to understand about this dynamic. Over and over again, you will see the media repeat in headlines uh, these types of things without ever finding a way to actually justify it because it conflicts with their overall narrative about the nature of climate and this sort of uh, moral punishment that ought to be due to red states led by red politicians who are skeptical of the green approach to dealing with the climate issue. Rather than build nuclear plants and, uh, and engage in clean energy from that perspective, uh, we have, of course, a very backwards approach that is designed to punish those developing uh, nations around the world because of the apparent sins of, of those who've come before and been able to innovate, grow, and use fossil fuels to get ahead. This is something that the left does time and time again, and until we start calling them on it, and politicians and leaders who are willing to call them on it, we'll see this repeated nonsense even by the President of the United States. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the front.